Something that uh, I just wanted to comment on a couple things that the pastor shared. One of them is that there are no wasted words in Scripture. And sometimes we can skip over words that don't seem to be that consequential. If you, if you remember, look at, look at John 3.16, one of the most well-quoted, well-known verses in the Bible. There's, so, there's something here that if you took it out, it would make a difference. You know, it, uh, the impact, the force of something you say. We use adjectives. Well, we used to do that. Now everything is awesome. But when we used to have adjectives that we used to describe things and adverbs that would be in there, we would add strength to what we say. Now, what am I getting at? Well, there's a word in here that really is, is actually probably a key word. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting, if he please, eternal life. Take that little word, so, out of there. It's not a wasted word. Read it now. For God loved the world. Doesn't that sound kind of different? For God loved the world, that he gave his only... Do you see how... Does that sound a little bit flat? Isn't it missing something? That one little tiny word, it's that important. It's just one little word. And in the Greek, it's just a, it's a very small word. Is it two, Pastor? Is it uh, hutos, I believe? Uh, yeah, host, so? Hosty. Hosty, yeah. It's just about a four-letter word in Greek. And yet, if you took that out, the verse becomes flat. It loses its, it loses its impact. It's God loved the world in this way. He so loved the world. If you take that out, if you just say God loved the world, okay, well, that's still a good statement, but it's not as practical or not as potent. Then there's another thing, too. Uh, it reminds me of something that it's, it's always stuck in my mind. We talk about results, and Pastor mentioned that we always think in terms of results. But, you know, sometimes God does something just because it is right to be done. And uh, if you look over at Acts chapter 13... There's something here that's interesting. You know, if, if everything has to have results, then tell me, why did God do this? Because I don't think you're going to see a lot of results to what it said here. In Acts chapter 13, this is Paul when they were getting ready to uh, offer sacrifice for him because he healed somebody. We read beginning at 15, Acts chapter 13, verse 15. Now, Paul, Paul says this. He says, Sirs, why do you do these things? We are men of like passions with you. And preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is and all the things therein, who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. Now you notice he had a witness. When we think of witness or testimony, this is thirteen seventeen. We think there should be results. If you're going to have a witness, there should be results. But so he left himself not without witness. And that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful season, filling our hearts with food and gladness. How many people do you think have responded to that today? Americans in this country are not only full of food, but many of us are so full of food we need to diet. And, and how, how much response do you think God's gotten out of this? But did God stop doing it? See, that's one thing that I think Pastor brought out. I think it's a very important thing to remember, is the things that God does in his program aren't always to bring results that we can see or results at all. Maybe there aren't any results in this. I don't know, but there certainly is no excuse for these people. 
They couldn't say they didn't know God. They had a witness that God did these things. These are good. These are things that made people happy. So there was there were no results. But does that mean it was useless? No, that's... Uh, I once preached a message a time or two. I used this a couple times. That there's no such thing as a wasted witness. Because you don't know what a witness will accomplish. And there always will be someone. There, were, there have been people that have responded to the light of creation. There have been people that have responded to this and understood there was a God. Very, not very many, but there have been. Well, we're going, coming back to our notes. We're on page 4. Oh, Acts chapter 13. Uh, 14. Is this 14? Uh-oh, did I have 14? I'm looking in the... Here I am. Okay. Uh, did I do that? Oh my goodness. I surely did. It says 14 at the top of the page. It's 14, 13 through 15. I'm sorry. But <laughs> Pastor? No, you don't have to feel bad. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've, always, I've always thought that I want to invest in shoes that have peppermint soles. That way, when I put my foot in my mouth, at least it'll taste good. So we came down. We, now, we have, uh, we have eight weeks left, and we have about, let's see, we have about nine pages left. So roughly a page a week. So we're actually not doing too bad. So, uh, and we, we haven't really been moving all that much faster than a page a week anyway, because there's condensed in here so many things. So now we've been talking about spirit beings, and we've looked at a lot of things about them. We've seen that there are, there's a division of spirit beings where you have cherubim, the higher rank, seraphim, which there's very little known about, and then of course you have angels. And so we've looked at them, and you can see, and, and we have come up with our distinctions between quite a bit about them and even how they appear. But now we're coming up to the time when they're created. Now we know that we, we know that spirit beings are created to the to the uh, creation of or prior to the creation of the material universe. We know in Genesis one one it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But if you look over to Job chapter thirty eight, there's something that you don't have back there, and that's because when you get into Genesis, you're dealing with God with God and His relationship to the human race. So he's not going to talk about spirit beings, not because they aren't there, not because they're not important, but because it's God's dealings with humanity that's in focus beginning in Genesis, as as Moses writes, because he's dealing with his people Israel, and he's bringing them up to date. This is what God has been doing. But when you come over here to Job chapter 38, I like this chapter because when you see this, Job 38 uh, when people have come to the book of Job, they have said this is a book about human suffering. Well, if it's about human suffering, when you get to the 38th chapter, why is it that God never tells anything to Job about why he suffered? In fact, what he does, he says in verse 2 of Job 38, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Ooh, wait a minute now. He's not saying, poor Job, here's what's happened to you. I understand your suffering. If you read from 38 through 42, you'll never find that God says anything about what happened to Job and his suffering. But he does take Job to task because he does tell him very pointedly a little bit later that he says, are you going to condemn me to justify yourself? That's pretty strong language. Uh, 
see where that was. Well, you can find it in here. I, I didn't write the verse down, but he does say in so many words, will you condemn me that you can justify yourself, Job? So in the process of talking to Job, he asks him some things, and, and I like this now. The first thing he says in verse 3, gird up your loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where were you when I, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare thou if thou hast understanding. And I always like to say, you see that blank spot at the end of the verse? That's Job's answer. That was his answer. So God is saying to him, okay, you know so much, and you are such an, such an elegant and such an elevated man. Give me some answers. You know all these things? You're justifying yourself? Okay, then you must have knowledge. Tell me this. Did you see? When were you, where were you when this happened? And of course, Job is there. I wouldn't have wanted to be in Job's shoes at that point. But in verse 7, he says this. He's asking where he was when different things happened. So where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, in the Old Testament, the sons of God only is ever used a few times, and it's always used as spirit beings. Now, it's a common pitfall that believers sometimes have to assume that Old Testament believers knew what New Testament believers had. How many books of the Bible did Job have, by the way? He didn't have any, did he? He was the first. This was the first. Actually, this is the first book written. If you want, the book of Genesis has some older events, but the first book written was the book of Job. And I believe... For reasons, and we've shared it before, if you go back to Genesis 10, you'll find a man named Jobab who was the 13th son of somebody who was born a good 250 years before Abraham. So that's probably this man here. So this man lived before Abraham, and he wrote way back. And so these events were before. So in other words, he didn't have a whole Bible. So would he have known what we know? If you look over at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 19, would Job have known anything about this? See, this is a pitfall people have is they assume not only that everybody had the same salvation, as pastors mentioned again and again, and rightly so, but they also assume that people's relationship to God was identical to ours, and they were called by the same things. Now it says in Romans 8, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, if the Spirit of God was upon people in the Old Testament and not in them, did he lead them? There's no evidence of that, is there? He was upon them, he'd come and go, and he wasn't upon every one of them. So if, if you wanted to try and bring this back to the Old Testament and equate this to having the Holy Spirit upon them, there would have only ever been a few humans it would apply to. But it's not found back there. And then in, verse 9, then in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature, or it really should be translated the creation. Sometimes in the King James, that creature, when you see it, it's the same Greek word. It should be translated. It is translated a few times creation. It should be here. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, is that true in the Old Testament? Well, we have a real problem if we try to read that back because the expression, the sons of God, this exact expression that is used here occurs a grand total of five times in the Old Testament. Five times only. Now, we see that the sons of God shouted for joy here. Now, do you suppose if... Well, let's look at this event. What is this event? The morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. 
What does the morning star singing together sound like? What is that? That's Genesis 1-1, is it not? Now, when, the, when they say the morning stars sing, if you, want an interesting, if you want something interesting, go home tonight and, and type in sounds of stars. And they can, trans, they can translate this, the colors and so forth, and they can make the sounds of the planets, which are fascinating. And they can give you the sound of stars, and you can hear what probably what angels heard. Now, if someone was there to hear that, what does that tell you? The sons of God shouted for joy. If they were there to shout for joy at the creation, what does that tell you? Well, they were made before the creation, doesn't it? Well, so these sons of God here, could they be humans? No, of course not. Now, let's go back. We'll look at all five uses quickly. That's the first use. Now, I want you to go backwards to Job chapter 2. We're going backwards. We're backpedaling without being a politician. (laughs) I always like that when they say something. They say they have to walk it back. Well, we're walking it back, but it's not a mistake that we're walking back. I I always get a kick out of that. And now in chapter 2, look at verse 1, Job 2. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, there's a problem here. There's a definite article. There was the day. It's not, I don't know why they didn't bring it across, because it's there in the Hebrew. There's no doubt about it. There was the day when the sons of God came to station themselves. It's a term that means to stand in an organized arrangement. In other words, this is something that happened on a regular basis. There was a day. There's the day this happens, and they come, and these angels have assigned positions that they take up to stand before the Lord. They present themselves there, and Satan comes with them. So that's an interesting thing there, but now you notice, please, it's the sons of God. Now, uh, has there ever been a case where people, even today, a group of people went up and stood before the throne of God in the third heaven? There's only ever been one human that went to heaven, isn't there? That was Christ after his glorification. So this is obvious. This cannot be human beings. Now you go back across the page, and you have the exact same statement back in Job 1, verse 6. Now there was the day when the sons of God came to station and present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them. So now you have very little doubt here if this can't be human beings, human beings don't just walk up to heaven. How would you get there? <laughs> It'd be quite a trip. And they talk about going to Mars. It'd take months to get to Mars. By the way, I, read, I heard something interesting. I was watching, listening to a YouTube program on astronomy, and did you realize that at some points Mercury is closer to Earth than Mars? By six million miles, once its nearest approach of Mercury is closer than the usual distance of Mars. Now, Mars does get closer at certain points, but generally speaking, Mars is about 6 million miles further away than Jupiter, than Mercury's closest approach, which I thought that was fascinating. I never knew that. It goes to show that you never know everything about any subject, even if you try to follow it. Now, back in Genesis chapter 6, here's where people have a problem, and that's the reason we're working backwards. When you get to Genesis 6, People want to try and make this something else, anything else, than angels. 
but in the Old Testament, these exact, this exact Hebrew expression, and, and uh, I have an interlinear Hebrew. If you wanted to see the Hebrew expression, I could show you the exact Hebrew words. And it's the same back here. So it says in, in, in Genesis 6, beginning of verse 1, It came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took wives of them of all they chose. And then it has again in verse 4, it says, And there were giants in those days, and also after that one the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and bear, and they bare children unto them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of the name. I kind of like that. It's men of renown. It's men of the name. They had a name. So, now, in the context of the Old Testament, you have this expression used three times prior to this, because actually Job was written first. So Job is written first. Genesis is actually written later. So based upon Job, who were the sons of God? Are they humans? They can't be. They can't be. Now, I know people don't want to believe this. Oh, well, angels don't have bodies. No, they don't. Can they materialize bodies? One quick example. Look over at Genesis chapter 18. I'm not going to make this up. I don't have to. Pastor doesn't either. <laughs> but in, in, in Genesis 18, you can see, can angels materialize a human body? Yes, they can. Now in Job, Genesis 18, and the Lord appeared to him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the, in the door, he sat in the tent, in, tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and, and lo, three men stood before by him. Now, he lifted up his eyes, and all of a sudden, three men are there. Did they come walking up from a distance, and he didn't see them? I don't think so. It doesn't sound like that. He's all of a sudden, there's three men in front of him. And so when he talks to them, you find out one of them's the Lord, but the other two go off, and they're going down to, uh, to the nation, or to the city of Sodom. And let's see, well, first, in the 19th chapter, verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at evening. Now, did they, appear as, did they appear as angels? Well, they came in, and the people of the city, uh, verse 5 of the 19th chapter, yeah, and they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men that came into you this night? So who were they? Well, they were angels, but they appeared as men. So bring them out that we may know them. Now, you know very well what that talks about. You think it's, you think it's bad today with our problem with, the, with these deviants, sexual deviants. Well, if you read through this chapter, in the 19th chapter, you find the whole city was that way. The whole city. All the men. Now, I don't think we've got a city like that yet. I mean, they talk about San Francisco as being, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, at least an honorable mention, but it's not there yet. So our point being then, that can angels do this? Yeah. And so when you see the sons of God, this is just kind of a, we, we put this in here because the sons of God are there, and they are there to witness creation. So it's pretty obvious, if they shout for joy, then they had to be there before. So they had to have been created at some point prior to the creation of the material universe. Now, I don't know how long. I'm not going to speculate. There's nothing to indicate in Scripture. And really, we don't need to know it anyway, do we? 
If I had, you know, just as an aside, if I had answers to every little question that I wanted, if there was scripture for it, do you realize this Bible would be like this? Because Don's got all kinds of questions. Why this, Lord, and why that? And you get, and I'm sure Pastor and I put together, we get together, Pastor, we could have a whole library full of books of the Bible to answer the questions we have. I know we could do that. Well, we just don't plainly need to know it. But now there's something else we should say here when you go back to Job chapters 1 and 2, just for a moment. This, this is something that's important here because the sons of God come in and it says Satan came among them. Now, chapter, chapter 1 or 2, they're both 1, 6 and 2, 1 are identical. So it, the same would be true of either verse since they're identical. Now, the thing I wonder about is it says the sons of God came and Satan came among them. Does that indicate that he wasn't a son of God or that he wasn't any longer regarded as a son of God? Because remember, son always has that idea of position and privilege in the Old and the New Testament. Did Satan have any position with God or privilege anymore once he fell? No. No. According to Ezekiel 28, he was thrown out of the program of God. He's an outsider. So it's interesting. It's just a little interesting note along the way. Is it's, He came among the sons of God. In other words, he's no longer considered one of them. He's an enemy. And his answer, this, we've mentioned this before, but it's something worth noting. When God asked him in, in verse uh, 7 of the first chapter, the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered, Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. And then the Lord says, have you, the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him, a perfect man, an upright one, that one that fears God and, and escheweth evil or shuns? I always think of chew evil, it sounds like to me. I could just see somebody chewing on a piece of fat. But uh, so, when, it's Satan, when, when Satan says he goes around, he's walking up and down on the earth, is he just a tourist? If you haven't written in your Bible, and you, like, and you don't mind doing it, write 1 Peter 5.8 right here. Because it says, Satan walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But there's a catch in the New Testament. And it turns out there's a catch in the Old Testament. Can Satan just go up and tempt any believer he wants to anytime he wants to? No. You'll notice here, he has to get permission. And the Lord says in verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only upon himself put not forth thine hands. So Satan went forth in the presence of the Lord. Do you realize in the Old Testament as well? That's one similarity between old and new. Do you realize that Satan had to get permission? To do this. So he came in with these angels and he's been walking up and down. And you know what he came in for? He came in to get permission to tempt somebody. But you notice what's interesting. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? Who put him up to tempting Job? Stop for a moment. Think about it. Who, whose idea was it to tempt Job? Was it Satan's or was it God's? God said, have you considered him? And what you, when Satan says is, yeah, but I can't touch him. Because look what he goes on to say. Yeah, look at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing, for naught? Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his substance is increased. I can't touch him. And you're paying him off. You're paying him off. You're paying him to work. That's what it says. You've blessed the substance. You've given him stuff. And he looked back and found that he was the wealthiest man of his time. So Satan says, can't touch him. 
So Satan knew this man, but he wasn't actively considering him because of what he said. He said, I can't touch him. So God hangs this out there, and Job is the bait that Satan takes. Now, oh, is that fair for God to have Job be tempted? Job succeeded. Job vindicated God, didn't he? And Satan got slapped upside the head because Satan was so convinced, so convinced that he, that, that he says in the second chapter when he gets permission, uh, in verse 5 of the second chapter, he says this, uh, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, that all that a man hath he will give, he will give for his life. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will bless you to your face. Now, I read that right. It says curse, but that's actually the Hebrew word for bless. And that's what you call sarcasm. I was, I was very pleasantly surprised that the, 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 the best Hebrew lexicon actually agreed with me, or I agreed with it. I don't know which. I came up with that conclusion, and I found out someone, someone that really knew something agreed with me, so I felt good about it then. So an expert agreed with me, so that made me feel good. But that word is used that way. It's, it's sarcasm. Now, I've, I've used that expression before, and I, maybe you have too. I remember one time when, when our kids were very small, we were over someone else's house, and their kids were the same age, and so they put one of the little ones to bed. And, of course, like all little ones, there's all this commotion and excitement, and the little one's getting put to bed. They don't want to miss what's going on, so they're howling back there. And so Cheryl looked at me and said, Oh, so-and-so is really blessing you, isn't he? Blessing <laughs> Blessing mom and dad, isn't he? Blessing, and that was, of course, the same idea. So this is how sure Satan was that he could do it, but he, got, he didn't originally come with the intention of, I don't think he came with the intention of Job because God is the one that put him up to it. God baited him. Now, he came against, he was here for permission for somebody, but who was it? That's, there's another question. See, there's another, another chapter to the Bible I'm going to make. Because I want to know, who did he come to tempt? Did he really come to tempt Job? I don't think so. I think that God put that there in front of him because God, God knew that this man was going to hold up. But it's very interesting. So if you notice it, then our, in our notes, we're all the way down to the bottom of page four, that the important thing is point C is comparing Job 2.2 2 with 1 Peter 5.8. You can see, I believe that Satan came not to pay a cordial visit, but he came to get permission because it says in First Peter he he goes about on the earth looking for who he can over who, who he can overwhelm who he can devour he can chew him up spit him out that's what he's doing and so here he says to God I'm walking around the earth well what was he walking around the earth for like I said he wasn't a tourist and he wasn't bored no he wasn't looking around to see to see who's got the best sale on something he was looking for someone to tempt and so he came to get permission. And so I think, point D, I think really, and you know, and I wouldn't fight with anybody over it, but I really think if you look at it and read the text and think about what it says, I think God was the one that held the bait out, and Satan being so smart and so clever, he thinks he cannot do God, and he didn't even see that he was taken. He didn't even see that God hooked him again. It's a... Uh, well, my only question is, and here's another question, and add another chapter to the Bible... What, how did Satan react at the end of the book? After God gave everything back to this man, double, including he had ten children again. He had ten children, he lost all ten, he had ten more, and he had double the substance. And don't you wonder, what was Satan saying at that point? I would love to know what he was saying and thinking. 
Yeah, Satan, uh, God, God does such a dramatic job of slapping him around. When he does things, he loses, you know, the most damaging thing you can think of is back in Genesis 3. This isn't in your notes, so we can't charge you for this, but this is, this is free. We can't charge you for this because we, we didn't put it in our notes. But if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, there's something that is stated that I think probably... Now, Satan would have thought with the fall of man into sin, he thought that he had won the day. He thought he completely thwarted God's program. He would have thought that because that's what he came to do. But now, when you look, let's see, in verse 21. And unto Adam and unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. Now you say, well, what's, what's that got to do with anything? Well, animals didn't have zip-off skins. They didn't have reversible skins that they could flip over and turn off or take off. Those skins were there because there were animals that were killed. They were killed for sacrifice. What does that tell you? Here Satan thinks he's won the day, and you see in verse 21 the very clear indication that now God has provided a way of salvation for Adam and Eve and posterity right down to us. What plan of salvation did Satan get when he fell? What is his plan of salvation? There isn't one, is there? So now do you see what happened to Satan? The affront that this was, the damage he gets, he tries these things and God comes right back and gives it to him. Because now he's got to face the fact, now he knows something. He didn't really succeed because he opened the door for God to make a marvelous program for Christ to come and do all this work. And he opened the door. And he is not part of that program. So when you think about Satan, he really, God has really done him a lot of harm because he's tried to get God. He's trying so hard for revenge. And none of what he does, if you read through the Bible, and I've mentioned this before, but take me up on it sometime. Go through every reference to Satan in the Bible. It might take a little while, but look and see. Tell me what Satan ever did that was constructive for anyone. Even himself. He, he gained nothing by man's falling. In fact, he lost something. Did he gain anything by that? Did he, would he, have, he wouldn't have gained anything if, they, if, if Herod had been able to kill Christ in, in Matthew chapter 2. Would he have gained anything there? No, he wouldn't gain anything. Satan has never and does not do anything constructive. He's a demolition force of one. Everything he touches, he will destroy because God has done it. Anything God does, he opposes. It's just, it's just astounding. So I think you can summarize Satan's whole purpose in his existence since he fell is one thing. Revenge. I want revenge. God took something from me. I am going to take from him. Because remember, he was, back in Ezekiel 28, this was the man, this was the being who was on earth. He overshadowed the earth. He was the one that administered everything before there were humans. And all of a sudden, he is taken out of that program. He's thrown out. And guess what? Every angel in the universe knows that this being has been disgraced. What would that do to his pride? Now, that's not recorded in Scripture, but think about it. This being who was known for his pride is publicly disgraced in front of every angel in the universe. There's a whole bunch of them. So there's, there's a lot about Satan that, that comes out. But anyway, so... In top of page five, and these, this other material, I think is something worth knowing. It's, it's related to what we're doing, but it's, 
Not part of my notes, but I think you should still know about it. Now, on the top of page 5, very simple. We know that the sons of God were created before the material universe because they were there to witness it. Now, we know that spirit beings have a way of habitation. According to the book of Jude, Jude that they did, if you look at Jude chapter 1, verse 6, I used to always say just Jude's verse 6, but more modern writers have insisted on chapter 1. Not like I can say, let's look at Jude, Jude chapter 2. I can't do that, but... <laughs> well, I, I might try to do that, but it wouldn't do too much good. Now, he says something here, and this goes along with what we saw back in Genesis 6. Now, that's not the reason we're here, but, it's, but it is part of what shows up here. It's the angels which kept not their first state, but left their own habitation, or if you please, way of habitating or living. He's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So there were angels that did not stay in their way of habitation or their way of habitating, or if you please, living their lifestyle. So there's a way of living that angels have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, <clears throat> I believe when you go back and remember what it says in Job 38.7, their way of living was they were to inhabit the stars. Because if you look at it, Back in Job uh, 38.7, when it says that they shouted for joy, grammatically, that shout for joy is connected to the morning stars singing. So it was a direct response. When the morning stars began to sing, that's when they shouted for joy. Now, well, why would they shout for joy about that unless it was something directly related to them? You could say, well, they were seeing what God is doing, but I don't think that's the case at all, because when, when you remember in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, uh, angels are called stars, and they're identified as angels. If you look at Revelation, and let's take a moment real quick to look there, Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm not the only one that's warm, I see. <laughs> It's, it's definitely warm up here. Uh, I know, Pastor, we could probably write it off and say it's the hot air up here, but, uh, but it is warm. It's always warmer when you get up and speak in front. But in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 4, it's, well, it's talking about Satan. And it says in verse 3, it says, There appeared a wonder, another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven, head, seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head, and his tail drew the third part of the, of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered uh, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, stars, a third of the stars are cast to the earth. Now, this is something that's going to happen in the future, but when you look... Down at verse uh, 13 and 14, it says, And when the dragon saw he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man's child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly in the wilderness into her place where she's nourished for a time, times and half a time from the face of the dragon. Let's see, now wait a minute. Uh, where does it say? I thought I had the right verse in here. Verse 7. Oh, okay, I, I, I should have went to verse 7. Look back to Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels. 
So the angels were the stars that we saw. So they're, they're called stars back in verse 4, but they're identified as angels. Now you might wonder, well, why is that so? Well, you notice I put something in your notes. You know, if you see somebody wearing a coat, a, a heavy coat, and you say, that's a Floridian. You can tell that's a Floridian because they're wearing a coat when it's 60 degrees out in the winter. And uh, I know Wendy, when she first moved here, she, she thought that was kind of comical. She said, these people wearing coats when it's 60 degrees. <laughs> Guess what she does now? She wears a coat when it's 60 degrees like the rest of us. And so do I. We're, it's, it's funny. But so, you know, you identify someone by the place in which they live. A person wearing a coat when it's 60 degrees in the winter, you're going to say, hey, that's, that's got to be a Floridian. Now, if you look over at Revelation chapter 19, you'll see something else. Or Revelation, excuse me, it's 21, I want. Oh, no. Wait a minute. No, that's, let's go to Revelation 19 first. Then uh, Revelation 21 is something else. Revelation 19 and in verse uh, let's see, 17. 17? Okay. And it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the, the supper of the great God. And continuing on from there, this is the battle of Armageddon. Now, the only reason we're here is, what is this angel doing standing in the sun? That's probably his home. We said that the stars are for them, and so they're called stars, and that, that frequently happens. You, know, you call somebody by the place they live. Now, there's something else, that, uh, and this isn't in your notes, so this again, I can't charge you for this one, Pastor, but if you look over at chapter 21, there's something interesting for the believers, and I, this, is, this is wonderful. This is for us. <clears throat> in Revelation 21 and verse 9. Now you've seen the destruction of the nations. You've seen Satan being judged. But now there's, there's, some, other, there's some final things. Like you see in verse 1 of the 21st chapter. It, saw, I, it says, and I saw a new kind of heaven. That's the word new that means new in, new in kind. Not just time, but also new in kind. A new kind of heaven and a new kind of earth. For the first earth and the first, first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, what would happen, by the way, if you took the sea off the planet, all the water? What would happen? Would you have an atmosphere? No. Wouldn't have an atmosphere. So, a new kind of heaven. And this tells you something about the, about the eternal state. There's a little glimpse of it there, just a little picture of it. But now we look over at verse... Uh, at verse C, verse 9. This is something that you can take home. And there came unto me one of the seven angels that had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, who is the bride? Who is the Lamb's wife? The church. But now what follows, what is really something, look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now you notice the holy Jerusalem comes out of heaven. It comes out, so it's not heaven. It comes out of heaven. It's something that was contained within heaven. There's all these people that have these supposed, after they come back and they came to heaven and saw Jesus, they always describe the new Jerusalem. 
So it makes you realize they're probably faking it because the only way they can know the detail they know is because they're looking at this. But now it goes on, and wait a minute, so it starts talking about the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem, and it describes what it's like. Now, wait a minute, what is, what's going on here? John is told by this angel, or by one of these seven elders, actually. No, excuse me, it is an angel. Verse 9. He said, I'm going to show you the Lamb's life. And what does he do? He shows her, he shows John the place where the Lamb's wife is going to live. This is where you're going to go. If you and I die today, if you want to know what it's going to be like, I don't know what all of heaven looks like, but I can tell you, if I can read words, and I'm not making it up, you can see it right here. He says, I'm going to show you the Lamb's life, and he starts to show the new Jerusalem. What is he doing? Showing where the wife's going to be. Now, if this is the place the wife is going to live in, what is she going to be like? That's us. Well, I know that's where you could, you could write 1 John 3, 1 and 2 next to this, because we're going to be, when we see him, we'll be like him, and this is where we're going to go. This is where we're going to live for a thousand years. This is going to be our home. So... It's very interesting. Now, we're not, we're not called New Jerusalemites or anything like that. I suppose we could actually... Um, oops, this thing fell off. Oh, this speaker's still on there. This, where is it? No, I think it came off. Well, I don't think it was working to be careful with this, I think. I hope I didn't lose too much of the recording. But so, <laughs> I don't know, am I too flamboyant? Is that what it is? <laughs> I've, always, I've always tried to uh, think of myself as being a very dignified and ornate speaker, and somehow I put my foot in my mouth and I ruin it every time. <laughs> so another case in point for so much for being a dignified speaker. But nonetheless, so, so you, can, you see what we're getting at with the angels. Their place, they were happy because they were created before the universe and the, the stars were made for them. Now that tells you something about angels. How many angels are there? Oh my goodness. Do you realize that they say in, this, in, this, in the Milky Way itself, our galaxy, they say there's like 200 million stars. And there's one picture that you can go on the, inter- <clears throat> the internet and see, and it shows you in this one quadrant, you can count the universes, and it said that they can see in this one area up to a thousand universes, or a thousand galaxies. Now, if each one of them have 200 million stars, and you have a thousand of them, and that's just one quadrant that you can see, how many angels do you think there are? There's there's an awful lot. There's an awful lot, so... uh, It's it's really going to be something, so... These, all these angels have these stars, and so there's got to be an awful lot of angels if there's one for every one of those stars that must be. And so that really tells you something, too. When you think about there being so many humans, you think, oh, there's so many. There's eight billion humans on this planet. You, when you start counting up the angels in this galaxy, I think you probably surpass all the humans that have ever lived by the time you get through with this galaxy and maybe take the next one over Andromeda, which is bigger. Next galaxy over from us. So, the sons of God, uh, therefore, so we can say without doubt, 
The sons of God shouted for joy because they were created before the material universe and they were created because that's where they're going to live. Now, Scripture doesn't, you notice there's an arrow on top of page 5. Scripture doesn't indicate how long spirit beings existed before the universe was created and we offer no speculative theology about this. And a lot of theology is pretty speculative when you read some, what some people write. <clears throat> and Scripture also does not reveal how many angels God created, only that the number is vast beyond human comprehension. Now, if you look over at Hebrews chapter 12, this, this is a very interesting one because it ties in New Jerusalem and the residents of the New Jerusalem. Well, I already told you we're going to be there, and, and, and Hebrews 12 tells you that we are there. But it says something else, and this is, this is just staggering. These, there are some things that you read, and you say, okay, that's what it says, but I just can't comprehend it. I mean, I, can, I, can't, I can't wrap my mind around what, is, what it really is telling me. <clears throat> it says in verse, uh, verse 22 of Hebrews 12, now he's talking about uh, what happened with the, with the Old Testament when they saw the mountain trembling where the law was given. It says, but you're come to the, unto Mount Zion, verse 22 of Hebrews 12, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now it says innumerable company. And I believe if you look at it, it's myriads upon myriads in the Hebrew. It's, it's thousands of thousands of myriads and myriads. The word that is there, in fact, we get the word myriad from this Greek word. Myriads and myriads of angels. To the general assembly of church, of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the spirit, and to the God the judge, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Interesting thought there. So you have in the new in the new Jerusalem, it's going to come down over earth. It's going to have a myriad of myriad of angels in there. I don't know, is it every single angel? It looks like it says myriads of myriads. There's going to be quite a few angels in the New Jerusalem. And the church is going to be there. But it says something else too. Have you ever wondered about Old Testament believers that were there before the law, before promise, like Job? Well, it says, the spirits of just men made perfect. That would be people like Job. There were some people that existed who were saved before Abraham, before the law, before the promise. They're not Jews. They're not Christians. What happens to them? Well, here they are. The spirits of just men made perfect. Because if, if you try to make that the church, well then he says, church of the firstborn, God the judge, and he comes back and says, the church again? I don't think so. This has to be somebody else. Now, the, the people of Israel are not going to be here because they get the planet Earth. So who does that leave? That leaves a group of people that very seldom get talked about, people like Job that existed before the God began dealing with Abraham. And so if you go back, there are some people that were there. Well, you see, there's Enoch. He walked with God. Where, where does he go? He's not going to be in the New Jerusalem with us. He's going to, well, he is going to be, but he's not going to be the church. He's going to be here. And you have at least two people I can guarantee are going to be there. You're going to have Enoch and you're going to have Job. And there probably are some others too. So now you know a little bit more about the New Jerusalem. It's going to be something else. Now, in Revelation 5.11, and we're going to have to, this will be a good place to stop, but in, Math, in Revelation 5.11, you find once again something about the number of angels. And this is the verse, I, I, 
I think I slipped up in Hebrews. This was the one I was thinking myriads upon myriads. And it says, uh, And I beheld, and the voice of many angels around the throne, and the, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So you have 10,000 times 10,000, and then myriads upon myriads are thousands. That word for thousands is the word myriad. So you have 10,000 times 10,000, which would be, what's see, 10,000 times 10,000 will be what, up into the million somewhere? And then you have myriads upon myriads added to that. So how many angels is that? Well, my mind just quit working at that point. That is just too many to, to comprehend. What's that? 100, uh, so that's 100 million, and then upon that, myriads upon myriads. So then what do we wind up with? Uh, yeah, well, we're going to stop there. We're going to come back next week to angels were created as individuals, not automatons. And I think that's something that perhaps people don't think about. But uh, I have a suspicion that people look at angels and they probably think that, that they're basically like your Star Wars uh, evil men, the evil guys, the, the guys in the white that come marching out the stormtroopers. They think they're just all kind of like that. Well, they're, they're not. I think we're going to see that there's, there's reason from Scripture to say that no, they're not, and there's plenty of evidence of it.